Good morning. My name is Aaron Imbury. I'm one of the elders here, and let's, let's pray before we continue. Heavenly Father, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. What question do you have for Jesus? Let's say Jesus was giving a talk. Maybe you've been to something like this. There's a Q&A afterwards, and there's a microphone, and people form a line. What would you ask? That's essentially the situation that we have in today's passage. Let's recap a little bit to set the scene. Jesus has traveled to Jerusalem, God's city, and he's visited the temple, God's house, and he has caused a stir. He sees what's meant to be a house of prayer for all the nations has been commercialized. And he literally flips the table and leaves. And he's back the next day. And the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, the leaders who would have been nodding in approval of all this money changing that was interrupted the day before, they stop him at the door. How dare you? Who do you think you are? On whose authority have you done this thing? And Jesus has a question for them. You want to know if God wants this temple cleansed or if I was just having a bad day? Well, I'll answer you if first you answer me this. Did God want John out there baptizing people or is John just a few locusts short of swarm? And you can imagine that people are starting to take notice of this confrontation. Maybe a crowd is gathering, and the leaders realize that's a thorny question, and they can't answer that in front of all these people. So they sheepishly stand aside. We don't know. And Jesus goes in to the temple. And he starts to teach. He tells a story, a story we heard two weeks ago, about some vineyard workers who think they're vineyard owners and will kill to protect that deluded identity. And those chief priests and scribes and elders, they're not feeling sheepish anymore. They're getting angry. They realize that implied in Jesus' story is their question reflected back at them. On whose authority do they do the things they do? Who do they think they are? Are they serving in this temple or being served? Jesus is a threat. And they want him gone, but they don't want to face him again. So they do some scheming. They send some Pharisees and some Herodians to ask Jesus a question he won't be able to answer in front of a crowd. Two can play at this game, except they can't. And as we heard last week, Jesus won't be placed on a human political spectrum. And so they send another group to try again, and we have today's passage. Mark 12. And Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. 
The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they raise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Now, narratively, this passage isn't that complicated. Question gets asked, question gets answered, but it generates a lot of questions for me, like one per sentence just about. Here's some of the questions I thought of. Some of the questions I thought of. (laughs) Just keep them coming. That's good. So maybe you thought of some questions like this too. And, you know, they seem to open progressively larger cans of worms as they go, right? And the first two aren't too bad. Sadducees are a social and religious subgroup in Judaism. They're generally wealthy and highly placed in society. And specifically, they were in charge of running the temple. And important to this passage, they only believed in the divine inspiration of the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, called the Torah. The rest, Psalms, the prophets, they viewed as extra material added by humans. And as such, they did not believe in a future day of the Lord where the dead would be raised and the earth judged and God would come to live with his people in a new world. And the marriage practice being described here is called leveret marriage. It comes from Deuteronomy 25, where God is giving commands for how Israel will live in the land that he's giving them. It's a strongly family-based culture, and having heirs to carry the family name is critical to stability and the transmission of wealth. Childless widows were at risk as they fell outside this family structure, and leveret marriage was meant to prevent those women and families from falling into poverty by re-including them in the lines of succession of the tribes of Israel. It sounds strange to us, but in that culture, it was a way of caring for the vulnerable. And here's where we get a sharp increase in the size of the cans of the worms. What's this about marriage? What is Jesus saying about marriage? You know, in, in popular culture, there's a conception that the Bible is a book of rules that you follow so that you can go to heaven when you die. But, you know, the Bible doesn't really provide a lot of details about that after-you-die existence. We, we want to know about that, but it just doesn't say much about what it'll be like. And this seems to be one of the scant clues that we get, so we get really fixated on it. It's kind of like the big fish in the Jonah story. That's not really about a fish, but kind of dominates the discussion, right? Jesus seems to be saying that if you are married now, you won't have a marriage relationship with your spouse in the new creation. 
How does that make you feel? Is it upsetting? Do you still want to go? Or maybe. Doesn't sound entirely terrible. If, if, that's the si- if you're sitting next to your spouse and that's the side of the fence you're on, I just try to keep that to your... I mean, you should probably talk about that, but just right now is not the time. And there's a lot of people in here. I'm sure someone is connecting the dots. Wait a minute. If there's no marriage in the resurrection and sex is meant for married couples, is there no sex in the resurrection? And if you're thinking that, you are in a lot of trouble. This is a church. (laughs) I'm just kidding. That's actually a really good question. How do we feel about that? Do we still want to go? And Jesus adds to this, you know, because we'll be like angels. As if that explains it to me. That opens more questions for me. I don't really know what an angel is like. And while I'm still thinking about that, he says that, he suggests that, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were already resurrected alive at the time that God was talking to Moses, but Jesus hadn't died yet. And how does salvation work in the Old Testament? And I, I just have a lot of questions. And we'll come back to some of those things. But I have another question about this passage that I have never seen anyone comment on. Commentaries, study Bibles, nobody seems to be talking about this. What is going on with this woman? Right? You know, one dead brother, that is very sad. Two dead brothers, that's a tragedy. Three dead brothers, I feel like, you know... Some questions should have been asked at this point. Other people should have gotten involved around four or five, maybe, you know. And what was what was it like for brother number seven the morning of the wedding? You know, does he have to like psych himself up? You know, like what (laughs) what are the odds? You know? (laughs) Lucky number seven. I'll be fine. Why are we why do we think this woman is in heaven? Like, do we have to worry about this actually? You know, is this really a problem? Of course I'm being a bit ridiculous, but so are the Sadducees. You see, they didn't actually want an answer to this question. It's a question based on a ridiculous situation meant to prove that the very concept of resurrection is logically absurd. They'd read the fine print in the Torah and found this problem that supported their case, and they were sure it would stump Jesus and send him packing. And we still use Scripture for this, right? To create people that are right and people that are wrong. I mean, it's different things now. Maybe it's how old the earth is or how exactly is it going to end or how does free will work, but we still find ways to have it all figured out and other people don't and you stay over there. But Jesus isn't stumped. He makes sure they understand that they have made a significant mistake. He calls them wrong straight up twice at the beginning and at the end. This is serious. But he meets them where they are. He he doesn't try to convince them to accept the prophets and the other parts of the Old Testament that talk about resurrection. He uses a story in Exodus, part of the Torah. He reminds them of the story of the burning bush where Moses encounters God. And God introduces himself as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Jesus points out that God is not God of the dead, but of the living. So these guys must be alive. Now, that's interesting, because in the narrative of the Torah, these guys are are dead at this point and have been for hundreds of years. We have specific stories about 
how they died and where they were buried. One of them is going to get carried back to the promised land in a box later on. It, it seems like Jesus is using a different understanding of dead and alive than we do. There's a scene in Luke where a man says that he wants to follow Jesus, but he can't just yet because he has to bury his father. And Jesus tells him something that seems kind of strange. He says, let the dead bury their own dead. So taken together in these two instances, we have Jesus calling people in graves alive and people up and walking around dead. What's going on? Let's check with Paul. Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Does anyone here feel like they were dead before today? Paul seems to think so. He seems to think that all mankind has been dead. For Paul and Jesus, dead and alive are not about metabolic processes. But if you have encountered and followed Jesus, before we know Jesus, we are walking around in an imaginary world of our own making, a world where Jesus isn't king Paul calls that kind of living death. And notice also that following Jesus isn't just life, but eternal life. We have been raised up with Jesus and seated in the heavenly places. Paul said we have eternal life right now. We were dead in our trespasses and have been made alive with Christ right now. Now, don't misunderstand, a future resurrection of our physical bodies is a reality, but eternal life is not something to wait for. We can live it right now. That's easy to say. That's kind of a, it's kind of a grand thing to say. Actually, how does that work? I'm not sure I felt dead. I'm not sure I feel resurrected. Well, I believe... It's about who we think we are and what we think life is. Let's consult a philosopher on this topic. 
from the upcoming film True Crimes, please welcome two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey. Thank you. I am two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey. You know, when I go to sleep at night, I'm not just a guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey going to get some well-needed shut-eye. And when I dream, I don't just dream any old dream. No, sir. I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winning actor, Jim Carrey. Because then I would be enough. It would finally be true. And I could stop this, this terrible search. For what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. But these are important, these awards. I don't want you to think that just because if you blew up our solar system alone, you wouldn't be able to find us or any of human history with the naked eye. But from our perspective, this is huge. From our perspective, our perspective is set by our identity. And our identity is the scale on which we weigh everything that happens to us. It's the lens we look through. It's how we assign value. And when your identity is two-time Golden Globe winning Jim Carrey, the Golden Globes are a huge deal. What's your identity? What's your huge deal? Or stated differently, who do you think you are? Well, I think that I am picked first, Aaron Embry. I was an awkward kid. I know it's very difficult to imagine. <laughs> Literally the last pick for kickball kid. I was bullied. I was made fun of. I was weird. I was never cool. But when I am picked, especially by a cool kid, oh boy. That feels really good. And when I'm passed over, abandoned, forgotten, that hurts. A few years ago, the company I worked for was purchased, and we had a major restructuring. And I was on a pretty good career run. I'd been increasing in influence and responsibility. I was being picked, and I liked it. And when this restructuring began, there was a lot of buzz about all the opportunities it was going to create for people to advance in the company. And there were a lot of opportunities, but they weren't for me. I actually went from leading our entire engineering department to a fraction of it. And I found out about that in the public announcement. Not only was I passed over, I felt forgotten, it wasn't even worth telling about it ahead of time. And I know that's not the saddest story, but for picked first Aaron Embry, 
It was crushing. I had a physical reaction to that news. I remember the ache in my chest. It literally hurt. Examining what makes our hearts sore and what crushes them reveals the identity that we operate under. What is it for you? What's the best news you could possibly hear? What would just make your heart leap? Or what news gives you that tight ache feeling in your chest? Those things point to who you think you are. And this identity of being picked, it's like a drug. Now, by God's grace, I've never suffered from a substance addiction. And in a room this size, there are people who have. So you'll forgive me for using an analogy I'm sure I don't completely understand. But this picked first identity, it operates like an addiction. I find a new source of pickedness, and I fixate on it, trying to extract more and more. Because the amount that worked the first time, it's not starting to work anymore. Is there anything in your life like that? I need more and more, but why? Why does an identity like picked first operate like a drug? It's because it's a performance-based identity. It's a perspective on the world that requires constant maintenance from me. It is sinking sand. If people are going to pick me, then I need to be delightful and charming and pickable. It's Jim Carrey's terrible search. How are you searching? What, from your perspective, is huge? If you have to be a great, you will never be okay. There is no rest in being a Sadducee or a Pharisee, an engineer, teacher, pastor, doctor, driver. There is no rest in being the smartest, the funniest, the fastest, the strongest, the most having it together. There's no rest in being a father, mother, spouse, friend. If any of those things are who you think you really are, you can never stop or it will all come crashing down. Performance-based identities offer no rest. You can take a break, but you're getting behind. You're missing opportunities to be a better, and you'll have to catch up, and you have to defend it. That's what the Sadducees are doing right now. They run the temple. That's who they are, and Jesus is here saying, it's, uh, it's not your temple. And the appearance of life in their dead identities is starting to fade, so they scramble to cover it up. It's like the crew of the Black Pearl from Pirates of the Caribbean. You remember that? They look alive until moonlight shows them for what they really are. They're dead, right? Picked first, or whatever that might be for you, it doesn't work. It's self-defeating. Living in that identity isn't living at all. It's what Jesus and Paul call dead. Performance-based identities are false gods. We treat them like gods. We seek their presence. We serve them to try to get their favor. We worship them, but they have no power to sustain us. And we are quite wrong to trust them.
they are dead. And while we follow them, we are dead. But Jesus has good news. Who I think I am is not who I actually am. Jesus has a different perspective. He has real life, real, abundant, eternal life that he will share with us. In the Gospel of John, Jesus defines eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ who you have sent. Jesus' life comes from his Father, and he wants us to be a part of his family right now. The way to access eternal life right now is to let go of our performance-based identities that can ultimately never fulfill us and rest, actually rest in the identity Jesus has gifted us, children of the good Father. That is an identity that requires no maintenance, no upkeep. You can't lose any progress, and there is icing on that cake. When we live in that true identity, we can be a better teacher or baker or friend than we ever were before. I've been reading a book, and there's a sentence that won't leave my head. When we use others to meet our needs, we cannot love them. Without Jesus, we are always looking for more sand to shovel under an identity that can't hold us. Can I get it from you? Can I get it from you? Can I get it from my job? Maybe I can buy something. But Christ is a firm foundation. When I stand on that, I can finally stop worrying about getting and start giving. Now, someone might be thinking, that's all very good, but I'm a little worried because I, I, I trust Jesus, but I, don't, I find myself still wanting to worship these false gods and live in this false identity. Am I not doing this right? Like, is there something I'm missing? There's an overgrown lot next to my work, and I, I don't know for certain, but I, I think someone purchased it because it's being cleared. Someone looked at that lot and said, I want you. I have a purpose for you. I value you. You're mine. Someone signed a piece of paper. A legal transaction was made, and the status of that lot changed immediately. Lost to found. Now, the, the legal transaction, it's invisible to me. I, I couldn't tell you anything about the details of how it works exactly or even when it happened. And the lot didn't look any different the moment that it happened. But it is starting to look different. Clearing it took days. It wasn't instant. And for us, clearing our lots, letting go, waking up to the eternal life we already have, it will probably be more than days, a lot more. There's this idea in our culture that there's a moment after we stop respirating and metabolizing and whatnot where we're going to be at the pearly gates and there'll be a test. Did you get the lot cleared enough? Well, you know, the trees are gone, but there's some brush over here and some litter still. And is, is that close enough? Do I, do I get in? Do you still want me? Friends, the moment 
you started believing the gospel, the moment you began that walk of repentance and faith, your first footfall was onto the soil of the kingdom of heaven. You were in. There's no test. You can't barely not make it because it's not about what we've done. It's about who we really are. His. And actually, there was a test. His test. And he passed. You know, if the, if the questions raised in this passage about what eternal life will be like bother us, we need to examine why. You know, a few weeks ago we read about the rich young ruler. He asked Jesus what he needed to do to inherit eternal life. Here's somebody asking the question directly. But what he meant by eternal life was an infinite continuation of his current condition, including his wealth. And that's not what Jesus had for him. And he went away disappointed. Anything, anything we see as a cost of following Christ is the desperate attempt of our false gods to keep our attention, to lull us back to sleep. Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like a treasure that a man sees and sells everything he owns to buy it. When seen for what it is truly worth, nothing else has any value. What are you holding on to? What price seems a little too high? You know, there are only a few times in the New Testament where what happens to a believer when their body dies is really even brought up directly. There's Jesus talking to the thief on the cross, and there's Paul thinking about dying in prison versus continuing his mission. And in both cases, the alternative to being in the body is being with Christ. With Christ. That's really all we get to know about it. What else do you need it to be? Whatever our concerns about marriage and sex and all the unknowns and how's that going to work, is Jesus enough? We're going to take a break from Mark for the rest of the year as we observe the Advent season. Christmas is about God coming here to be with us. Emmanuel, that's what that word means. And I think this is an amazing place to pause, Mark, and reflect on God with us. Consider this scene that we've just looked at, Jesus answering questions in the temple. Do you see the significance of that? In the Old Testament, what happened to you when you met God face to face? You died. The Pharisees and the Sadducees would have agreed on that. God is holy, righteous, perfect, and we're not. And we cannot stand in his presence. In this temple... In the very center, there is a holiest of holies where God's presence dwells, and it is for one person on one day after rituals of purification to go in there. For everybody else, it is off limits. And 
what is going on in this scene in Mark. Jesus, God with us, is in his house. God is in his house. And he's in the courtyard taking questions. He's the king of all things, and he's not in the throne room being adored and fed grapes and fanned with palm fronds. He's out amongst his people and being mistreated, enduring their suspicions and attempts to discredit him, patiently talking to them while they try to keep him from entering his own house. The money changers were driven away, but his interrogators were not. He listens to them. And think about this, pays them the monumental honor of giving real answers to their ridiculous questions. They don't want him, but he wants them. He wants them to wake up to who they really are. What a king we have. So patient, so humble. And when we resume Mark in January, he'll still be right here in the temple taking questions. God with us makes all the difference. What question would you have for Jesus in the courtyard of the temple? You know, I knew I would be asking that, obviously. And for a long time, I didn't know what I would say. What question would I ask? And I was thinking about all these things, and I was feeling particularly dead. And I started thinking about who Jesus is and what kind of king he is and what him being with us means. And a question popped in my head, and I think it's what I would ask if Jesus was standing right in front of me. It was just, can I have a hug? And I think the king of all things would say yes and gladly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for being with us. What a thing. I don't understand. However many questions I have, the question I really have is why, why us? You are so merciful. Help us to live in the life that you have given us. Help us to reject the things that distract us, that we try to take our worth from, and help us to rest in who we are as we look at you. In Jesus' name, amen.